three-story building, and it's as long as a tennis court. And two weeks ago, NASA released its first images from this platform. This one is a colorized image, uh, infrared image, of an area of space known as the Carina Nebula. I heard some wows. This area of the Carina Nebula is known as the Cosmic Cliffs. NASA posted the images on Flickr with a comment section below each of them. And listen to how the viewers described this image. This is just the adjectives. I pulled the adjectives out of the, all the comments, and here's what I saw. Amazing. Awesome. Beautiful. Epic. Fantastic. Grand. Incredible. Jaw-dropping. Lovely, magnificent, mind-blowing, moving, sensational, spectacular, staggering, stunning, wonderful, and more wows than I could count. What struck me is that the language in those comments was the language of praise. Now, granted, most of the comments were praise for man, for science, for technology, or just expressions of awe over the beauty or the sheer magnitude of what they were seeing, but it was the language of praise and worship nonetheless. The best comment, at least in my view, was this one. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Psalm 8. Now, in contrast to those words of praise were the words I read in an article posted the day following NASA's release of these images. The author of the article was discussing the relationship between art and science, and here's what caught my attention. She said, the Webb telescope shows science's capacity to bring us images that are aesthetically imaginative, expressive, and technically accomplished. But strangely, they don't make me feel anything. Science tells me these shapes are galaxies and stars billions of years away, but it isn't sinking in. The same images, very different response. One person feels nothing. Others have such a sense of wonder that they erupt in praise. That's what this morning's psalm is about. It's about praise. Or you could say it's about worship. What David saw and what he marveled at sparked within him a desire to worship. And I don't know about you, but I want to see what he saw, and I want worship to kindle within my heart and come out my lips. And first, let me say a few things about this psalm as a whole before we dissect it. The last five psalms we've studied this summer have been psalms of lament. They're cries of distress pleading with God for help. Psalm 8 breaks that pattern and launches with a burst of praise. It is a psalm of praise. There are, there are about 41 psalms of praise, and this is the first of them. We know from the title that it is a psalm of David, and it was meant to be played or sung or used in worship 
according to the Giddith. And if there's one thing that all the scholars agree upon, they have no idea what the Giddith is. That's true. It's hard to get scholars to agree on anything, but no one seems to know what this is. It could be a musical key, or it could be a musical instrument from the city of Gath, where Goliath the Gittite was from. They don't know. Whatever it was, the Giddith shows up in Psalm 8, Psalm 81, and Psalm 84, and nowhere else as far as I know. The psalm is structured like a sandwich. It begins and ends with identical words of praise. This burst, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The meat of the sandwich is the second half of verse 1. You have set your glory above the heavens. That's the core, the meat of this psalm. Then verses 2 through 8 explain that core thought of the glory of God. So the psalm opens with worship, worship that flows from the truth that God has placed His glory above everything, and then it closes with the same words of worship. Let's look at David's burst of praise in verse 1. O Lord, he says, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In English, that uh, beginning might sound a little redundant, but in Hebrew, David is using two different words for Lord. The first Lord, spelled with small capital letters, is Yahweh, the personal name of God. The second Lord, in lowercase letters, is a more general word for Lord. So David's not repeating himself. He's saying, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name. There's a lot that could be said about this little burst of praise, but let me just give you a couple of things. If you're comfortable writing in your Bible, underline or circle the word our. That little word tells us two things about the kind of worship that David had in view when he wrote this song. It tells us first that this worship is personal. Not individual, but personal. This is not just Yahweh the Lord. He is Yahweh our Lord. There is a relationship between us and Him. We are God's people, and He is our God. And it also tells us that this worship is corporate. It is plural. This worship is for the gathering, like we're doing this morning. We gather as lovers of God, and we address our praise to Him as our Lord. It is corporate, and it is personal. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. The name of God, as Calvin explained, is what we know of God's character and His perfections, at least as far as He makes Himself known to us. Obviously, we can't know everything about God. He is infinite, but we can know Him even though we are finite. As it's usually put, we cannot know Him fully, but we can know Him truly. That's what's meant by God's name. His name all that He's revealed of Himself to us is noble, mighty, and majestic. 
in all the earth. And as we'll see in the next phrase, his glory is above the heavens. The beauty of the character of the perfections of our God are everywhere. Therefore, let us praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven, Psalm 148. This burst of praise then leads us directly into the meat of this psalm. You, says to Yahweh, you have set your glory above the heavens. Now, the glory of God is a difficult thing to define. Some things it said are more easily pointed to than defined, like beauty. It's difficult to put a definition to beauty, but we know it when we see it. We can point to it, and glory is something like that. The root of the word means weight or heaviness, significance, splendor, even wealth and riches. So here's a rough definition for us. God's glory is his perfections, aspects of his goodness and his greatness displayed for us in brilliance and beauty. There are two key parts to that definition. God's glory involves his perfections. Those are the characteristics that we attribute to him, like his immensity, his eternity, his majesty, his goodness, and his love. And God's glory involves the display of those perfections. You could say display or the shining forth or the flowing out from him of those perfections. My favorite definition of God's glory comes from the Puritan Thomas Watson. I've shared this in the past. Thomas Watson said, glory is the sparkling of the deity. And you can see both aspects of the definition there. God's perfections and the display of his perfections. Watson calls God's perfections his deity. That is what God is. And he calls the display of those perfections the sparkling. And that captures the idea of shining forth or flowing out, as well as the idea of beauty. So I think with a little explanation, Watson gives us a wonderful definition. Glory is the sparkling of the deity. So the meat of Psalm 8 is this, God elevated or set his glory, the display of his perfections above everything, even above the heavens themselves. And that reality is what ignited David's burst of praise. Now, I don't know about you, but that's what I want for me this morning, and I hope that's what you want for you this morning. To see that reality of God's glory and have it well up within us and burst forth in praise. So if the question was, how do we inflame our hearts to worship? The basic answer from Psalm 8 is that meditating or contemplating God's glory is what ignites our worship. The ground of worship is the glory of our God. But let's break that down. David gives us two aspects of God's glory to contemplate. First, to inflame our hearts to worship, contemplate God's glorious display of strength through weakness. Verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avengers. 
The image David uses here might seem odd to us, but the meaning is very clear. God loves to display His strength through weakness. He uses baby talk, so to speak, to cause powerful enemies to cease. That's what it means to still the enemy. It's not merely to silence them. He causes them to cease. And he can still enemies through the unintelligible babblings of nursing babies. God subdues the strong by using the weak. That glorifies him. It is a display of our God's greatness. You see, you might think this illustration is cheesy, but it's one thing for a wrestler to win a match against a wrestling champion. But for him to win it with one hand tied behind his back, that puts his strength and his skills on full display. There will be no boasting from his opponent. That would be more stunning and more praiseworthy than merely winning the match. When God uses the weak to conquer the strong, it results in praise to his majestic name. His power is made perfect in weakness. Think of the triumphal entry. Jesus rode on the colt of a donkey, humbly, into the city of Jerusalem. The crowd spread cloaks and tree branches on the road before him, and they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. They were worshiping. When Jesus got to the city, he went into the temple, and he drove out the money changers, and it's at that point that the temple becomes the scene of a fascinating interaction between children and Jesus and these religious leaders. This is in Matthew 21, verses 14 through 16. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Notice that Jesus displayed his glory by giving sight to the blind and causing crippled to walk. That's praiseworthy. Those are wonderful things. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Oh, these little ones got it right. They saw Jesus' display of his glory, and it sparked worship. Hosanna to the Son of David. The very words that the crowds were chanting as Jesus rode on the back of the colt into the city. But what was the response of the religious leaders? They were indignant. And they said to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? You see, Jesus' display of glory didn't faze them at all. Instead, they were outraged that he would allow these children to proclaim what his display of glory had clearly shown, that he was the long-awaited Messiah. The same glory and two very different responses. Like the images from the web telescope, one person feels nothing, or in this case, they are outraged by it. Others burst with praise. And here's how Jesus responded, verse 16. So they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read, and that is a rebuke, 
These men were supposed to be the experts in the scriptures, and he says, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So Jesus quotes Psalm 8 to confirm that from the mouths of these toddlers and infants, God had established praise. These little ones were praising his glorious display of strength, and Jesus used their words, the words of the weak, to still his enemies. God uses what is weak to overcome the strong, and it results in praise. We see examples of this all throughout the Bible. We see God using an old barren woman named Sarah to birth a nation as numerous as the stars. He used a tongue-tied Moses to order Pharaoh to free God's people. He used Gideon's little band of men armed with trumpets, torches, and jars to defeat an army of Midianites. And he chose the author of this very psalm, David, the youngest and least in his family, to slay a giant and to subdue a host of evil nations from the land. But these all of these displays of God's strength through weakness were meant to point us to the most spectacular example of them all. Jesus, the lamb slain for sinners. This weak lamb was slaughtered, raised to life, and is highly exalted, worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The lamb who was slain is the pinnacle of God's glorious display of power through weakness. That's the message of the gospel. And no surprise, Jesus chose to use 11 weak, timid, uneducated disciples, men of little faith, to proclaim that message and turn the world upside down. Strength through weakness. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It is for His glory. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. So to inflame our hearts to worship, one, contemplate God's glorious display of strength through weakness, especially in the gospel. And secondly, contemplate God's glorious display of himself in creation. Consider the heavens and consider humans. Verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, now pause... We'll see David's response in just a minute. For now, just notice that he is looking at the heavens, as he probably did on many a night as a young shepherd. He's studying the works of the Lord, meditating on what the Lord created. And because, because, these are his words, these heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. That's David in Psalm 19. To inflame our hearts, 
to worship, we should contemplate God's glorious display of himself, his glory in creation. God's glory seen and delighted in leads to worship. Two key verses. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I will sing for joy. Psalm 92 and Psalm 111. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Back in verse 3, notice that David doesn't say, look at the heavens. He says, I look at your heavens. He could have said it either way, but David here is acknowledging that the heavens belong to Yahweh by right of creation. God created the heavens, therefore they are His. That truth should guide you and I as well as we contemplate the glory of God displayed for us in the sun and the moon and the Carina Nebula. They are His. As we explore what little we can see of the Lord's heavens, even through a giant space telescope, listen, listen to the glory they're declaring. They are a sparkling of our God's deity. In those glittering celestial bodies, we see something of God's existence, His eternality, His power, and His holiness. Contemplating God's glorious display of Himself in the heavens should cause us to shout all together, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And not only should it cause us to shout, it should cause us to feel very small. There's something wonderful about that sense of smallness when we stand in view of something great. That's why we love to stand at the foot of El Capitan and stare straight up at 3,000 feet of granite towering above us. It makes us feel tiny, and it stirs within us a sense of awe that leads to praise. It's why we like to stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and look down a mile to the Colorado River. That's how David felt as he contemplated the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've put in place, here's how I feel, Lord. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? I see your glory in the heavens, David says. It is so mind-staggeringly massive and beautiful. All I can do is marvel that a God like you is even aware of puny humans like us. Yet you are. David has shifted now from what can be known of God from contemplating the heavens to what God has revealed of himself in his word. There's more. Not only is the all-powerful creator mindful of humans, but he cares for them. In fact, what we'll see in the next four verses is even more mind-blowing. Not only does God care for humans, but he puts them in an exalted position in creation. Now, let me be very clear. There's much we can learn from this psalm about mankind, and we won't even scratch the surface of it this morning. But David did not compose this song to glorify man. 
This psalm is a psalm of praise to God. The glory and dignity of humans that David expresses here was meant to make us marvel at the God who gives that glory and dignity. And that's important. I read some commentaries this week that essentially said that this psalm was more about man than about the power and majesty of God. That's just not true. If a friend gave you a brand new Ford pickup truck for your birthday, or if that doesn't, if that doesn't work for you, uh, insert any extravagant birthday gift you can think of. He gave that to you for your birthday. It would be ridiculous for you to conclude that you're great, that you're worthy of praise because of a gift you got. The gift tells you more about your friend than about you. The giver of the gift gets glory, not the receiver. Verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Those are angels, most likely and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. It inspires worship to consider that the Creator would even take notice of of us, but that he would exalt us to a position of honor is unbelievable, and yet that's what he did. He put mankind in a position just below the angels. He gave them a kind of glory and honor. The dignity he gave man is greater than what he gave the rest of creation. Mountains, rivers, and elephants, as marvelous as they may be, do not have the same dignity as people. If you paid attention to the news, you'd know that last month, Uh, New York's highest court came to that same conclusion, and it took them years of legal uh, wrangling and a 109-page legal decision uh, to conclude that Happy the Elephant, who resides at the Bronx Zoo, deserves proper care and compassion, but she is not considered a person. How much did that cost us? Not only did God give humans dignity, but he also delegated authority to them. He made them vice regents, so to speak, with authority and dominion over creation. This is part of what it means for humans to be made in the image of God. On the sixth day of creation, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You can see where David got his words for Psalm 8. The point is this. When we contemplate the glorious display of God's character in the creation and providence of man, it should spark worship. When we consider how small, weak, and frail we are compared with other things that He has created, It should cause us to marvel that he was even mindful of us and marvel even more that he cares for us, that he has put us in an exalted position in creation. That should cause us to worship. So 
the first insight we gleaned from this psalm to help us inflame our hearts to worship was to contemplate God's glorious display of power through weakness, especially in the gospel. And second, contemplate God's glorious display of himself in the creation of the heavens and of humans. Meditating on those two aspects of God's glory, as well as the many others we see in the scriptures, will fuel our praise for the rest of our lives. But there's a problem built into my thesis this morning. I've hinted at it up to this point. Let me make it clear. You may have noticed this problem when we read two verses earlier, Psalm 92 and Psalm 111. Let's pull them up again. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. Underline the word glad. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Underline joy. And then Psalm 111, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. And underline the word delight. Here's the problem. To praise assumes a delight in or an enjoyment of the object or the one praised. We cannot truly praise what we don't delight in. What I mean by that is that to praise or to glorify something is to enjoy it. If you separate joy from praise, it's no longer praise. It's lip service. We say it, but we don't mean it. Unfortunately, there's a lot of so-called praise and worship that happens on Sunday mornings that amounts to nothing more than lip service. We cannot praise or glorify what we do not enjoy. That is a devastating indictment. C.S. Lewis flipped this around and said it like this, fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. But that's not the experience of many. And so I call it out as a problem with what I've proposed today from Psalm 8. It's true, you could contemplate God's glorious display of strength through weakness and of Himself in creation and never know the joy in your heart that causes your lips to burst forth in praise to Him. It is there that I find at least one distinction between the praise of the unbeliever and the praise of the believer. The unbeliever contemplates the image of the cosmic cliffs, and if he feels anything, he directs his praise to men, to science, to technology, or to whatever else he credits for what he sees. The believer, on the other hand, has a heart that has been radically changed. He is a new creation. He sees and feels differently. And he directs his praise to the one who spoke those galaxies and those cosmic pillars of dust into existence. The solution for unfeeling, unbelieving hearts is found in one place alone, at the cross. Let me take you there by showing you what Psalm 8 was pointing toward. In verses 4 through 8, we saw something of the dignity of man. 
And we were careful to direct our wonder and worship to the giver of that dignity, not the receiver. I maintain that those verses were primarily about God, not man. Let me close by giving you one more reason. I think that's true. The author of Hebrews used those same verses to teach not about man, but about Jesus, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among man. The writer is explaining to the Hebrew Christians that the dominion of man, the dominion that man was given over creation, is a type or an analogy that points to the dominion of Christ over everything in heaven and earth. Hebrews 2, now in putting everything in subjection to him, that's Jesus, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's our experience in this fallen world as well. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The shadow in Psalm 8 of the glory and honor and dominion that God gave to man finds its substance in the person of Christ. His crowning and His glory and honor was because of the suffering of death. That is, the glory of Jesus is seen most clearly at the cross. Calvin said this best. For in the cross of Christ, as in a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the world. The glory of God shines indeed in all creatures, high and below, but never more brightly than in the cross. And if it be objected that nothing could be less glorious than Christ's death, that's a fair objection. It was an ugly death. I reply, says Calvin, that in that death we see boundless glory which is concealed from the ungodly. And there's the connection. The boundless glory that believers delight in and burst in praise over is concealed from the ungodly. They see it with their eyes, but they are blind, incapable of delighting in it or truly praising the Lord for it. They see cosmic cliffs, but they just don't feel it. The solution for unbelieving hearts that cannot delight in the glory of God is found at the cross. God sent His Son into the world to suffer and to die for the sins of people. Jesus loved them so much, He was willing to lay down His life for them. On the third day after His death, just like we recite in the Apostles' Creed each week, God raised Him from the dead, thereby announcing that His death was completely sufficient to atone for every sin that they had or ever will commit. God then exalted Christ to his right hand where he reigns from on high, granting salvation to all who call on him by faith. And when they call on him by faith, God puts a new spirit within them. 
He removes their heart of stone and he gives them a heart of flesh. The relationship changes. They become his people and he becomes their God. Then they can truly say with David, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. They become new creations in Christ. The old passes away. Behold, the new has come. They have new desires, desires that can delight in seeing and beholding the glory of God. They have new taste buds for spiritual food. They are truly new creations. So to the unbeliever this morning, I simply say, I beg you, call upon Christ. And for the believers here this morning, I say, Kindle that flame of worship in your heart by contemplating often God's glorious display of power through weakness and his creation of the heavens and of humans. Contemplate, meditate, and then let those words of praise burst from your heart and out your lips. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning for my brothers and sisters. Father, I pray that you would inflame within them hearts of worship. Father, I pray that they would burst forth in praise as they consider the works of your fingers. As they consider the way that you marvelously work your strength through weakness. Father, I pray that you would ignite worship within us at Living Water Church. I pray that we would become passionate followers of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that parents here would point their children to the heavens and to humans, that their children would burst forth in praise. Father, I pray that you would be glorified in our worship of you this morning as we contemplate these things. Father, do that work in our hearts. Father, do that miracle. Father, if there are those here who just simply do not know you, they, their unbelieving hearts cannot feel, cannot sense your glory. Father, I pray that your spirit would convict them, Father, that they would call upon your son in faith. Father, do that work in their hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Parents, at this time, if you have children in the children's ministry, you can go get them and bring them back in here to be marked examples of them. Worship and communion. Let's stand together.
the most brilliant display of God's glory. His strength through weakness is seen at the cross, and that's what we get to contemplate and celebrate with the Lord's Supper. If there's anything that should ignite worship within us, it is what we celebrate here with the Lord's Supper. Let's marvel at what he did at the cross. Jesus established the Lord's Supper for his church so that we would practice it regularly. He wanted us to continually remind ourselves of the death of his death, and, and he wanted us to put his death on display to our senses, the breaking of the bread and the pouring of wine, and that it memorializes the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. He also wanted it to be a confirmation of our faith and all the benefits of his death. You see, just, just as we eat bread and wine to, um, to grow and nourish our bodies, so we partake of the body and blood of Christ in faith for the nourishment and growth of our souls. And this, uh, this meal is also a bond and a pledge of our communion, not only with him but with one another because we partake of it together. So with that, I invite all of you to the Lord's table. I guess not all of you. Not everyone here may participate. The Lord's Supper is for believers only. Uh, the Scriptures warn us, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself. So if you're not trusting Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, or if you're living in unrepentant sin, please set aside these elements and come and talk with one of the elders. We will we'll be up front here to pray with you and talk with you. We would love for you to know what it means to delight in God. Parents, you know your children, and you have the responsibility of discerning as, as far as one can discern the heart of another, whether your children are in the faith and may partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. So if the ushers would please come forward now to distribute the elements, I'll just note that the tinted cups at the center of the plates are wine and the clear cups around the edges are grape juice. And as the ushers distribute the bread and wine, let's examine our hearts like the scriptures said. Let us bow our heads, let's reflect on the cross and examine our hearts.